Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. John chapter 13. And um, if you're a guest with us, we want to welcome you. We're so glad you're with, worshiping with us this morning. There is a, a card in the seat back pocket in front of you called a Connect card. One side of it is the prayer request. The other side of it is a contact card that we would like for you to fill out. And you can take it to the Welcome Center, which is directly across from the main sanctuary doors. And we have a little bit of information we'd like to give you. So if you would take that there, that would be awesome. And again, we want to welcome all of our online audience here. And, uh, you know, our online audience continues to grow. Would you guys give those guys a warm, warm welcome this morning? Online audience. So, welcome. We might even have Collins joining us this morning from Brooklyn. Who knows? But uh, um, our, our, half of our worship team went up to Brooklyn last night, or on Friday, and they did a, uh, a, a night of worship. And from what I understand, it went wonderful. And, uh, man, thank you for all the prayers. And we know that God you know, no doubt impacted lives. So praise the Lord for that. We're looking forward to get them back here next week as well. Um, if you're joining us, uh, you know, kind of intermittent or for the first time and you're wondering where we are in the Bible, we do verse by verse studies through the Bible, but we've been on this journey for several, a couple years now going through the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And so we've been looking at the four gospels. We've just been kind of traveling through the four gospels chronologically, as chronologically as we can. I mean, you know, some of it, it you, there's some questions about, but we're just kind of following a path, kind of the way that we believe that, you know, it happened. And it's a great way to study the Gospels because I don't know about you, but I'm confused sometimes when I read an account in Matthew and then I read it in John, and I'm like, is that the same account or is that different? You know, that, just like Jesus cleaning the temple, how many times did he do that? Once or twice? Did it Twice. But, but if you don't go through the Bible like that, chronologically, you wouldn't know that. So it's cool to do that, but typically we, we're verse by verse. And uh, today we are going to continue our study of the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order. And by way of just updating you, we are in the last, last moments of Jesus' life. It's Thursday night, uh, Mahdi Thursday, where Jesus is going to go to the cross here. The very next day, we are through the Passover meal he is now beginning, we'll see here in John 13, towards the end of the chapter, we will see him begin his farewell teaching to his disciples. John 13, towards the end of the chapter, all the way through John 17, Jesus is speaking on behalf, uh, it's speaking his very last words to his disciples. And we find that actually most of the gospel of John was, is really kind of about the last uh, seven days of Jesus's life, 50% of the gospel there. So, you know, if you don't, it's kind of interesting to look at it that way, but stand with me if you would, please. And we're going to read our account this morning, John chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 21 here. Here's what it says. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he's speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he who I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought because Jesus had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what, what was needed for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the high call upon our lives today to love the way you love. God, we ask you today to just help us to be honest with ourselves be honest before you this morning, Lord, if we are in desperate need of help in this area of our lives, Lord, to love the way that you call us to love, Lord, may we be transparent, Lord, as your spirit moves in our midst this morning, God, to just, to just be willing to surrender and receive the strength that we need in this area, God. We know you want us to grow in our love for one another, and so would you just speak to us, our hearts individually today, and meet us where we are today, Father. We thank you, God. We know that you're here, and uh, we know that you're at work in our lives, so we just open ourselves up and surrender right now, and we ask you to work in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You could be seated. <laughs> What an incredible call to love as Jesus loves. Oh, my gosh. As I was studying it this week, I was thinking, Lord, how am I going to teach this? Because it's an area in all of our lives, no doubt, that we can all grow more in. And so we know that at the end of the day, it's not by might nor by power but by the Spirit, says the Lord. Amen? It's nothing we can do in and of ourselves to do this. And so rest easy this morning. The, the weight is not on your shoulders in terms of your capacity to love, that you need to increase your capacity to love. You need to increase your capacity to surrender, to surrender the Holy Spirit so that He can love through you. Many of us are great at displaying love when, when we're loved, but when we're not loved... Do we display the same kind of love? That's the kind of love that Jesus had, you know. The kind of love that loved no matter what. It was not based on, you know, how he was being received or how other people were treating him or anything like that. He loved consistently and continually no matter who it was. Could the same be said for you this morning? That's the question. We, we know that to state that Jesus is loving is obvious, right? It's just one of those things that, of course, He's loving. He's our Creator. Colossians 1.16, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers of authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Jesus can't help but to love his creation because when God creates something, he loves it. That's pretty cool to think about. When God creates something, he loves it. He's not like you and I, wondering, you know, looking for approval outside, uh, somebody telling us what we're doing is good so that we can know that it's good. But God's not like that. He's not insecure in what he does. When he creates something, he knows that it's good. He declares that it's good, and therefore he loves because it's something he designed, and whatever God designs, he loves. When God made the heavens and the earth and all that was in it, including man, he said what? It is good. It is good. That in heaven means that I'm absolutely in love with what I just did. I am absolutely bananas crazy in love with what I have just created. I love it. It's good. It is so good. You know God created you, and that's his feeling towards you this morning. That you are good in the sense of his creation. Now, you might be distant from God this morning. You might be in some darkness or something, but God, what he created is good and he loves. And so there is a there is a mediator that has come to, to shore up the gap to help us come to that place where we can be in right relationship with God. But you know his love has never changed for you. Isn't that awesome? His love has never changed for you. He was absolutely in love with everything he created. That means you too. But how does he love? How does he love? That's what Jesus wants us to understand in our passage today. The title of my message is Loving Like Jesus. Loving Like Jesus. What we find in these 14 verses that we just read is a demonstration of how Jesus loves and a commandment that we are called to love one another as he loves. This is something that our world is in desperate need of. Amen? I mean, considering what we just experienced yesterday in Murfreesboro and Shelbyville, There is so much hate in our world today, folks. There is so much division. There are so many things that, you know, people are coming against. We're coming against each other as God's creation. And the church needs to stand up and love each other, love each other as Jesus loves us. And that in and of itself will become a testimony to the world. And the world will say, I want what they have. But of course, the problem is if the church isn't, loving each other the way that Jesus loves, then there is really no difference. And so today the challenge for us as the church is to step out of this thing called the flesh and to step into this thing called the Spirit. To walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. It's the only way that you and I can do exactly what Jesus tells us and, by the way, commands us to do is if we are willing to step into and walk in the Spirit. He wants us to love the way that He loves. Our world, and even the church, is not doing that. We're not loving the way that He loves. We're loving conditionally. And it's, and it's a sad thing that the enemy, the attributes of the devil, are being experienced even in the, even in the church, folks. 
We're seeing the, 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 the attributes of the enemy. His MO is to kill, steal, and destroy. And you have the same problems as a church as you do outside the church. There's gossip. There is killing, stealing, and destroying going on in God's house. And God says enough is enough. Let's just be Jesus to one another. And the only way you can be Jesus to one another, again, is if you submit to the Spirit of God. The only kind of people that can do this are Spirit-filled people. So what that means is don't expect that from the outside, amen? Don't you dare expect the outside to love you the way that Christ loves you. They can't. It's impossible for them. It is absolutely impossible for an unregenerate to love like Christ loves. We have to have the Holy Spirit inside of us to love. By the way, Jesus was filled with the Spirit. He loved because the Spirit was in Him. We can love the same way. We can't do anything about the hate movements in our world. But what we can do is choose to allow the Holy Spirit to use us to show the love of Jesus to each other into this world. So let's consider how the Holy Spirit might help us love like Jesus loves. First, we see how Jesus loves in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray you. Now, John is picking this up um, after Jesus had said, had, had washed the disciples' feet. You can see that up in the chapter, um, just a little ways there. Uh, and, the, and then they, they had the Passover meal. He instituted the Lord's Supper, as we talked about last week. And now it says that Jesus, after he'd said these things, that he was troubled in his spirit. He's troubled in his spirit. Not the spirit, he's troubled in his spirit. And that word troubled there is the Greek tarasso, and it means to cause movement, usually as a result of shaking or stirring. Jesus is shaking and stirring within, not simply because he will literally become the Passover lamb in just a few hours, although that is on his mind. He understands that he's about to go to the cross. He understands that the weight of sin will be upon his shoulders, that his father will turn his back from him, that the wrath of God will be poured out upon him. No doubt that's on his mind. He's troubled. He's stirred up. He's agitated. And yet I think that this trouble is something far different than him, him considering what is about to happen to him. He is considering what is about to happen to Judas. That's what it says right here. He was troubled in his spirit and he testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Jesus is standing witness here. He is standing witness from a personal knowledge of what is about to happen. And then he confirms this to be a fact by saying truly, truly, or verily, verily, same idea. I'm telling you a truth right now. Listen to what I'm saying. One of you will betray me. Literally, hand me over. To deliver. That's what the word means. To betray. To hand over. To deliver. He is stirred up. He is shaken in his heart because one of his most trusted confidants is about to betray him 
Who's really behind all of this? Who is the propagator of this betrayal? Of course, it's the flesh first and foremost, but it's also the enemy. The devil is also at work, and we'll see him in play here. But the devil is simply, he's simply using the greed of Judas to accomplish his purpose. He is using the sinfulness of man to accomplish his purpose. He does the same with you. He appeals to your sinfulness, and then he uses you to come against your brothers and your sisters to betray them. You can be used by the enemy to betray them if you do not resist the temptation of sin. Now, the enemy can't make you do anything. We don't want to ever give him glory as if he has power like God has power. He's not even sovereign. He can't create things. He's, he, he, he's operating within, the, same, within the, the sovereign plan of God in your life, and yet he somehow influences. And he throws the proverbial carrot before you, and you have to beware. Because if you follow the dangling carrot, you are eventually going into a point of betrayal upon someone, your family, your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ. The enemy is at work here, no doubt, but God is in control. And yet Jesus is still troubled. It makes him sick to think what is about to happen here, not for his sake, Don't misunderstand that. He is absolutely sick and grieving over the final destination of Judas. The fact that he will become the son of perdition or the sign of destruction. He will be the one that's prophesied about that will hand over the Messiah to be delivered to death. He will become a a child of hell. And that affects Jesus greatly. That affects Jesus greatly because he loves Judas as much as he loves Peter, as much as he loves Paul, as as much as he loves John, as much as he loves any of his disciples. He loves Judas too. He loves him. And he is grieved by this idea of where he will end up as a result of his own actions. Jesus loves his enemies as much as he loves his own. You know that? That's what he said, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, love your enemies. Well, he didn't just say that. He actually did that. Jesus doesn't just speak to us in word, but also in deed. So he he does what he says. And, And he challenges you to love your enemies. And yet, Jesus, here he is loving his enemy to the very end. The fact that Jesus, Judas would betray him, but he's loving him. Now, that's a mystery for us, isn't it? It's difficult for us to comprehend how to love our enemy because our enemy is coming against us. And when people come against us, we tend to lash back out, don't we? That's the flesh. That's how the flesh works. Our natural state is to turn to hatred. And it's easy to do. If you're, we're being honest with ourselves this morning, I'll be honest, I've done that. I've done that. It's a natural tendency of the flesh to immediately begin to hate when I'm not being loved. To begin to lash out when I'm being mistreated. But that's not how Jesus loved. 
Jesus loved consistently through by the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't love my enemy in my natural state, and neither can you. We can't love our enemies in our flesh. And you can't even love the people you love in your flesh the way you're called to. How in the world can you love the enemies in your life? You can't. If you and I are going to love like Jesus loves, we have to allow the Holy Spirit to have control of our lives. Paul said in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24, he said, but I say... Walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So you have an enemy within you that's opposing what the Spirit of God wants to do in your life. There's a battle, not just externally. There's a battle internally. There's a betrayer in you. And he's called the flesh. But, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are now not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's not an exhaustive list. He's saying there's more to it. But here's some example of the works of the flesh. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about people who are stumbling in these things. He's talking about people that are living in these things that will not turn away from these things, that they have no regard for what God has to say about these things. They are fully rejecting the word of God and saying, I don't care what the word says. I'm going to do this. You're not regenerated if that's the case. You're not walking according to the Spirit of God. If you have no conviction in your heart to turn to the Lord, then you need to question whether the Lord is really inside of you. And that's the reality. But check this out. Paul goes on. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Listen to this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Are you walking in the Spirit or are you walking in the flesh today? Because what this says is that there's an option for us to do either. But the reality is for the believer is that we have crucified our flesh. Like our flesh is past tense. We're now walking in newness of life. That means we're walking in the Spirit And yet sometimes we go back and we unhook that crucified flesh from the cross and we take it back on and we say, I want to live like this. I want to do the works of the flesh because they satisfy me. And the Lord would say, oh, temporarily. They satisfy you temporarily. But the grief and the shame and the guilt is far more for the believer who walks in the flesh because you know the difference. And the Spirit of God resides within you. Remember, you have past tense crucified the flesh. It was nailed to the tree. You have taken the flesh. If you've taken the flesh back up again, then you are choosing to walk in the works of the flesh and not allowing the Spirit to come alive in you. 
Listen, to walk in the flesh is to, uh, to walk willfully in its works. And to walk in the Spirit is to walk in an act of submission to the Holy Spirit. You don't have to do anything to get the fruits. That's why they're called fruits. A tree does nothing but suck up the roots. The roots suck up what's in the ground. They're not even responsible for the, for the food that comes in. They sit there and reside and they wait for the food to come. And when the food comes, it just naturally bears fruit. And that's what happens to you and I when we're rooted in Christ, when we're sitting and abiding in Him, and we're allowing His Word in our lives. It will bear fruit. God's Word never returns void. And so when you are rooted in Christ, you're going to bear fruit. It's not anything you muster up. You're not like, oh, I need to love. Help me love right now. I'm going to love. I'm going to, you know, yes, it's a choice, but it's a fruit. And apart from the Spirit of God, it's impossible. You can't do it. You can't have love. You can't have peace. You can't have patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control apart from the Spirit of God. It's their fruits. And so we have to wait and we have to surrender to the Holy Spirit. The answer is not to try harder, folks. The answer is to surrender, to submit to the Holy Spirit, to say, I will choose to allow you to work in me and through me. And when I do that, then I can love like Jesus loves. Write this down if you're taking notes. If you love like Jesus loves, you're bound to be betrayed. If you love like Jesus loves, you're bound to be betrayed. It is the reality. You very well may even be betrayed in the church. How many people have been hurt by the church? Anybody been hurt by the church? Lots of people have been hurt by the church because the church is full of, of potential betrayers, you know? I mean, we're, we're potential betrayers even today. We're, we're, we're deciding whether we're going to betray you or whether we're going to love you. And that is the reality, folks. You're deciding on a daily basis who, what, what you're going to walk in. If you're going to walk in the spirit, if you're going to walk in the flesh, and each one is going to have its own ramifications. Walk in the spirit, you're going to have good ramifications. You're going to have fruit in your life. Walk in the flesh, you're going to have the works of the flesh, which will bring you to a place of despair. That's not God's will for you. God's will is that you would bear fruit. Jesus is just undone here. I, I believe. Now, I think it's interesting that it's the apostle of love that's writing this. Because I think that the other gospel accounts of this particular situation are very brief and they don't really capture the heart of Jesus in the matter. But John, the gospel, the gospel of John, who is the, the apostle of love, I believe is capturing the heart of Jesus as it relates to Judas. He is saying Jesus loves Judas desperately. He loves him desperately because he understands that he, as a result of his hardness against Jesus, rejecting him over and over again, Jesus extending his hand of kindness, loving on him continually for three years straight, knowing he would be the one, by the way, and yet Jesus would continue to pour his love out on him. Jesus understanding that he would become the son of perdition, which his fate would be just total destruction. Jesus isn't angered over the betrayal of Jesus or over the betrayal of Judas. He is troubled by it. He is stirred up. He is agitated. He is saddened because he loves Judas and he knows his fate. It's impossible for you and I to love our betrayer in the flesh. If we're going to love like Jesus loves, we must allow the Spirit of God to manifest himself in and through us. Secondly, I want you to take notice 
of the kind of love Jesus has. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaned back against Jesus and said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he who, to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped into the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So Jesus has already let the cat out of the bag here. Everybody knows that there's a betrayer in the room. He's not talking about another disciple outside. There were more than there are 12 apostles. There, there were a lot of disciples of Jesus. He's saying, someone here, someone here will betray me. They, they, they don't, they, they're, they're kind of baffled by this. They don't understand it. The disciples are, are being put on notice that there's a betrayer in their midst, and yet they're confused. And what is probably the first thing you imagine that they start to do? Judge one another? They begin to maybe look a little bit with judgment, the hearts, the, the whispering thoughts of their mind. I knew you couldn't trust that fisherman, Peter. He is such a, he, that guy, man, he says what he wants to say and he does what he wants to do. I knew that it was probably him. Oh, but we already have a betrayer and we have a traitor in our midst here, though, that tax collector, Matthew. We have to watch out for him. And we knew that we couldn't trust him because he already betrayed us as a nation. Now he's going to betray. And the, the list goes on and on as they just go down one by one and they start to consider who might be the betrayer in their midst. And you know how I know that they're doing this? Because that's what we do. Because that's what we do. When we're in the midst of people, people walk in the church and, and, and if, if, we're, if we're not careful, our judgmental heart comes up and we begin to look at people like, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't think that person's saved. You, you, you have no idea who this person is. You're just judging by the way that they look. You have no clue about them. You've never talked to them at all. And yet, just with a quick glance, you begin to judge them. Amen? We do that. And we shouldn't do that. Because you know it's often those who are the least likely to be saved that actually probably are, and that's ones that you think absolutely are that may not be. That's just how we are, folks. We put on good faces, and we come into church, and you know, we, we, we act like everything's cool in our lives, even though it might be a disaster. We got no problems, you know. And uh, by the way, we got prayer cards out, so you probably need to fill some of those out because you all got stuff to pray about, and we want to pray with you. But, but the idea that we put on all these faces and so who really knows and, and all this kind of stuff. And so it's very, very, um, you, you know, we, we ought not judge each other. We ought to be very, very careful about judging people. Not only do I know it because we do it, but I also know according to Luke chapter 22, verse 23, it says, and they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. They are uncertain. They don't know. And in fact, Mark's gospel, the 14th chapter, verse 19, says they began to sorrowfully, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, is it I? After they judge each other, then they turn back on themselves. Lord, is it I? Is it I? Am I the one? You know what this tells me? Judas was an incredible actor. 
He was an incredible actor. No one knew it was him. In fact, he was probably the least likely person in any of their minds because he was the most trusted in their group. He was the money handler. He was the treasurer of the group. They trusted him. He was an incredible actor. And yet looks are deceiving, aren't they? That's why we ought not judge. Because we can't see the heart. But the Lord can. <laughs> Peter can hardly contain himself at this point, you know. He is being Peter to the, to the max here. And he's just stirring. He's, he's going crazy. He's like, John! John! He's right across from him. J- uh, you know, Peter is sitting in the seat of the servant, by the way. They're sitting at a triclinium table, a table that's sit, sit, seated in a U. Uh, on the right-hand side, it goes from the, the, the most uh, to, the, to the favored, um, um, not to the favored guest, but to the, to the best friend or to, a, to an honored friend would sit at the very first seat, and then the host, and then the guest of honor would be on the left, and then it would go all the way down, and it would go from greatest to least all the way down. And that's where Peter was sitting in the least. And it's interesting because Peter would be the one that Jesus would say, upon this rock I will build my church. And he would give Peter the mantle when he dies. And he would say, you're the one. And Peter, by the way, was probably the oldest in the group as well. So it's kind of interesting how Jesus does that. Peter, you're going to be the, 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 the uh, leader of this group. You're going to have to be the servant of all. And so Peter's sitting directly across. John is probably sitting in that seat of the, of the friend of the host, which is, you know, is it probably him because he leans back to his left and puts his head on Jesus' chest. Peter's going crazy. John, tell him. Ask him who it is. So John's like, okay. He leans over and he's like, who is it, Lord? Now understand, Jesus does not have to reveal his betrayer here. He doesn't have to reveal it. But because he loves Judas with a great love, he gives him an opportunity to turn away from his betrayal yet once again. And he says uh, to John, he says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now this is wild because this is a sign of divine love in this culture. Like this was a part of their Passover meal ceremony where they would take this cup and they would dip it and then the, the guest, the, the, the host of the meal would give it to an honored guest who would be sitting on his left hand side. That's how we know Judas was sitting there. Because he took it and he dipped it. He probably dipped it in this sauce that was made of dates and raisins and sour wine. And he dipped it in there and he gave it to Judas. It was an act of friendship and an end at the same time an identifier of his betrayer. And isn't it ironic that later this evening, this very evening, that Judas would come with a band of soldiers And Jesus would say, friend, why have you come? He would call him friend because he loves him. He would call him friend because he was showing him, I'm your friend, I love you, Judas, here. I want to give you this this morsel because I love you and I want you to understand. But at the same token, he is answering the question of who the betrayer is. But the disciples, they don't understand it because it's part of the meal. And so... What I'm telling you is that Jesus uses ordinary things in your life to do amazing things, to speak to you, and sometimes we miss it. Like he's being very clear here about who the betrayer is, and yet the disciples are still wondering when they walk away. They don't understand. Keep that the Holy Spirit antenna up in your life 
Because God doesn't, he does extraordinary things, but he often works in ordinary ways. And if you're not paying attention, you'll miss it. Later this evening, Jesus will say, will you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Judas? If you and I are going to love like Jesus, our love will need to know no bounds. Our love will need to know no bounds. Jesus loves us at our worst, and we must love each other in the same way. We must love each other at our worst. We don't just love each other when everything's going great in our lives, but we love each other at our worst. That means when we are at polar opposite ends, we're still loving each other because we're in Christ. And brothers and sisters in Christ love each other like Christ loves us, right? Well, that's the truth. That's how it's supposed to work, and yet it's a difficult thing for us to work out in our lives because we struggle with that. Because there's a war going on inside of us and we, the flesh wants to take over. But we have to choose to walk in the Spirit. And let me tell you something. The moment you take a step towards the Spirit, God meets you right there and you, you have the strength and the power to do what He's asking you to do. But He will not just infuse you with it and, and, then, and then there's no choice in that. But He just gives you the ability. He gives you the choice. And when you step out by faith and you say, I'm going to do it, he meets you where you are. That's walking by faith, not by sight. And that's what he calls us to. Jesus' love literally knows no bounds. It's so, fa- so vast and so great that it transcends all kinds of evil and wickedness. And perhaps your limit of love is too small, Christian. Maybe we need to expand our capacity to love a little bit more. Maybe the problem is within us and not within someone else. Take the log out of your own eye before you pick the speckle out of your brother's eye. We might want to think about that this morning. Then and only then can you love like Jesus. But again, it's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit. Only He can cause us to love like Jesus loves. Verse 27, Then after He had taken the morsel, Satan entered into Him, Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? do? What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. What I want you to consider regarding Satan entering Judas was the timing of it. It wasn't until after he rejected the love of Christ, yet once again, that Satan entered him. Theologian RVG Tasker said this. He said, in accepting the sop, Jesus shows himself completely impervious to the appeal of love. And from that moment, he is wholly the tool of Satan. Literally, at this point, Jesus does as Paul instructs the church in Corinth to do. He delivers him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, except for in this case, there is no saving of the Spirit. He just delivers him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. In other words, his fate is sealed at this point. Jesus has given him opportunity after opportunity. He's hardened his heart. He's hardened his heart. And Jesus says, here's the final straw. And Satan enters him. Not because Satan has the power to do that, because Judas gave him the power to do it. Judas welcomed him in through his greed, through his own sin, walking in the flesh. 
Jesus says, what you are going to do, do quickly. The disciples at this point have no idea what he means. What is he going to do? He's going to buy something. He's going to give something to the poor. But Jesus is saying that at this very point, the betrayal is set in motion. This very point, Jesus is saying, go betray me. Notice the way this ends. And it was night. Because that's when betrayal happens in darkness. And it was in darkness when Judas, Judas was walking in darkness the whole day. Judas had been walking in darkness for three years inside of of walking with Christ. He was walking in darkness. He chose to live a life of darkness rather than walking in the light. Let me tell you something. It doesn't matter how great Bible teaching you have. It doesn't matter what kind of example you have of walking in the Spirit. You can have all these great examples. This guy had the greatest teacher in the world, and yet he still hardened his heart against him. What I'm saying to you is that it's not about the church. It's not about the pastor. It's about the heart. It's about you and I. And it's about us choosing to walk in the Spirit. It's about you and I saying, enough is enough with this flesh stuff. I'm going to walk in the Spirit. I'm going to choose to do it. And at the end of the day, Judas chose the wrong thing. It was night. It had never turned day for him. For some of you here today, it's day. There is light within you. And God is saying, let it shine. Let it come out in you. Let it shine. But beware of the darkness because it's always lingering. It's always lingering. It is possible to hear the message of the love of Christ, that he loved you, that he gave himself for you over and over and over again and remain unchanged. To remain completely unchanged, and we all get that because we all do that. We hear the love of Christ and we're like, yeah, yeah, we, we got that. We need to move on to some maturity. Isn't that mature enough for you? That Christ gave his life for you? Oh, we got to move on past that. Do we really? I don't think so. I think maybe we need to meditate. If that's the heart, if that's the mindset of, oh, let's get some more principles, you're missing the whole point of Christianity because it was about sacrifice. It was about submission to God's will. It was about bringing the glory to God at all costs. That's how Jesus lived and he called us to live. Not, he didn't just throw out a couple principles to us and go, okay, just learn some more principles. That's not what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to be like him to live sacrificially, to give ourselves over to the will of God and whatever that means for us, to bring glory to God at all cost, no matter what it costs you. And it's possible to listen over and over and over again to this message and let it not affect you at all. That's what Judas did. So let that be something that we take to heart. And that we don't just become hearers of the word and not doers. We've got to be doers of the word. Jesus goes on, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Now, now that Judas is gone, Jesus now begins his farewell his farewell teaching to his disciples. And he begins to pour into some very intense discipleship right now because these are his very last words. And the very first thing he starts with is to love one another. That's the very first thing he starts with. He talks about, actually, the very first thing he starts with is the glory of God. He said, it's time to glorify God in my life. 
And what he's saying is he's, he's going to go to the cross. He understands that. He, he understands that his glorification is in the cross. Now, we look at our circumstances and we think like, I, I just don't see how God can take this despicable thing in my life, this trouble that I'm going through, this hardship that I'm enduring right now, and that he can glorify himself through it. I don't understand it. Well, I don't think the disciples understood that either. Because Jesus took the, the most, you know, the, the most shameful, the most d- despicable, the most curseful instrument of death, and he brought glory to God through it. So what that tells me is that God can take whatever circumstance I'm going through, whatever hardness, whatever trouble that I'm enduring right now, that he can take that and he can use that to his glory if I let him. It's a matter of letting him do it because let me tell you something. We, we can choose to walk in our, on, our, on our own path. I understand that. But sometimes the will of God is to take us right to the cross. So, you know, the will of God to walk in obedience to God is to walk the same path Christ walked and it will, walk, will, will take you down a road of some suffering. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. And that is the reality. And it's through that suffering that God will use it to bring glory to himself and he will make you more like Jesus. So don't despise the suffering is what I'm saying. And don't, don't think that in the moments where you're, you're dealing with very difficult hardship that God can't use it for his glory because he can and he does. Maybe the question is, Lord, why am I here? Is this something I've done or is this something you're doing? Have I chose this path? Is it a result of my willful disobedience? Am I walking in the flesh? Or is this the reality? This is your will for my life and I'm going to walk through it and I'm going to be a good soldier and I'm going to endure hardship and I'm going to suffer for Christ and I'm going to do it for, for your glory. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring glory to the Father through, this, through the death of the cross, through the glorification of myself as I am raised up, arms, lift, arms widened, pinned to a tree. God will be glorified. He goes on and he says that God will, he will bring glory to God. And, and here's the reality. Paul said this to us, that we ought to bring glory to God in everything that we do. Every aspect, whether we eat or drink, we ought to bring glory to God. What, whatever it is that you're doing, that you could bring glory to God. Peter said it as well in 1 Peter 4, 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good servants of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus lived his life in such a way to bring glory to God in everything that he did, and we should too, in everything that we do. He goes on to say, God is glorified in him. God will also glorify him in himself. So he's going to, because God is glorified in Jesus, Jesus is going to be glorified in God. And that's the reality for anyone who brings glory to God. He also will then glorify them. We will one day be glorified. Now, we're going to be transformed. We're going to be changed. Our lives, this body that we have right now will completely be gone. We will be transformed. We will be glorified in heaven. We will be like him. Man, I can't wait for that day. But it's not a result of what you've done. It's a result of what Jesus has done for us. And so our glorification as a result of Jesus' glorification, it's a result of being hidden in Christ. It's not because we're great. It's because he's great. 
And so we will be glorified as well. Jesus even prays to that end in John 17, 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. Look at verse 33. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Jesus is explaining to his dear little children. I love that. These are, these are men. These are, well, actually, these guys probably think they know everything because they're like teenagers. They are really like teenagers. They are teenagers. You know, Peter's maybe 21 or so. These guys are <laughs> young chaps. Probably know everything, you know. And Jesus says, dear little children, I love this because you're his child. If you're in Christ, you're his child. And he teaches you like a child. And I, and I need that because I am a child. I need to know the Lord to teach me that way. But he says to them that his time of departure is near and they can't come with him. They're not going to be able to walk. Jesus is now going to pave the road to heaven. He will become the way. And they can't do that right now. But what he is saying, unlike he said to the Jews, they will never be on that path. What he is saying is you just can't come right now. You're going to come down this path. You're going to walk this path. After I've paved it for you, you're going to walk down it. But you just can't come right now. He goes on in verse 34. In a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Here we find the commandment to love like Jesus loves. He says, a new commandment I give you. Now this isn't necessarily new. The commandment to love is not necessarily new. But the commandment that Jesus is instilling right now is different. It's more superior than, than what has been said before. In the Old Testament, it, there was a requirement to love. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and, might, and your might. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take revenge or bear, a, bear a, a grudge against your sons or your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. When Jesus was, a, was, at, was asked by a scribe on how to inherit eternal life, he replied to him, what does the law say? And remember what the scribe said to him in Luke 10, 27 to 28? He, said, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So the idea of loving each other was already existent in the Old Testament. It was, it was law already. But what Jesus, Jesus is now saying is he's not saying love, love God Love, love your neighbor as yourself. What are you saying is love one another as I have loved them. Whoa, that's a whole different level. That's a whole different level, folks. When he says, uh, you know, love people the way that you love yourself, well, that's one level. But when he says you love the way I love, that's a whole different level. Like he's saying you've got to bump it up a little bit. Like you're not, you're not loving the way that you should love. So let me, let me rephrase that. Let me tell you how to love. You've got to love like I love. And that's what he's saying here. How did Jesus love? Unconditionally, unequivocally, unbelievably. He was sacrificial in his love for us. Hebrews chapter, two, verses, verse tw uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He was sacrificial in the way that he loved you. You were his joy. He was salvational in his love for us. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost Jesus was revolutionary in his love for you and I. When he stepped onto the scene 
in, in, in Jerusalem in 30 AD or whatever the date was there, it changed everything about love. Jesus became a display that no one had ever seen before on, in, in a human or upon the earth ever. He became love to those who were supposed to be fulfilling the law and loving one another, loving their neighbor as their self, loving their Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. And they were not. Jesus had a selfless kind of love. Now, I know me and I know it's impossible to love like this on my own. I know that. And I hope you know that too about me, but also about you. I hope you know that about me, but I hope you know that about you, that it's impossible for any of us to love the way that Jesus is calling us to love in our own flesh. But I am thankful that God gave us help, that he gave us help. Paul said in Romans chapter 5, 5b, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Jesus said there's a helper coming. Paul said that helper is going to pour the love of God into your heart so that you can love like Jesus loves. And so you are equipped right now already to love this way. The question is, will you choose to do it or not? That's really at the end of the day. If you're regenerated, the Holy Spirit is inside of you. He resides in you. There's not a little Jesus in your heart. The Holy Spirit has sealed you. We say, Jesus, we're giving our hearts to Jesus. We're, 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 laying, uh, we're surrendering our entire life to Him. That's the idea. And when we do that, God sends His Spirit upon us and we are sealed. Ephesians 1.13 tells us with, with, with the Holy Spirit, he is, our, he is our guarantee for the inheritance that we will receive. And now the Holy Spirit becomes the power to live the life of Christ in you and I. So we are not powerless, are we? We have the same spirit Jesus had. And yet, you know, we struggle. And, and we will struggle to some degree, but sometimes we struggle because we choose not to walk in the spirit. We struggle because we're, we're not willing to submit to and surrender to the Holy Spirit. That's the problem. So the idea is, oh, I, I just got to read my Bible more. I just got to, you know, do some more spiritual push-ups or whatever it is. The idea is not that at all. The idea is I've got to surrender to the Holy Spirit more. Now, don't get me wrong, read your Bible. I mean, you should read your Bible because the Holy Spirit uses that. He uses that to convict. But the idea that we just need to do more is incorrect. That's, a, that's works-based theology. And the reality is that I didn't do anything to get my salvation. I can't do anything to be glorified. All I can do is rest in Christ. And so if I want to be more like Him, all I can do is rest more in Him, right? I can abide more in Him. That's the idea, not we got to do more. Let me tell you something. Your works will come as a result of surrender. Like what, when you surrender to God, you're going to have a passion for His Word. When you surrender to the Holy Spirit, you're going to have a passion to pray. When you, when you surrender to the Holy Spirit, your life will match the life of Jesus. But you cannot manufacture that. You cannot. You need to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that we're to love like He loves. That we're to love one another like He loves. And let me tell you something. It's been modeled for us in human beings through Jesus. He was a human. He was God at the same time, but he was also very, he was human. He surrendered to the humanity. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 there. But also, 
through the disciples. They loved as Christ loved them. Tertullian, who was a, a second century Christian, he said that of the, of the pagans of his day, that it was said of the Christians, see how they love one another? There was a difference. There was a difference. I love how Dan Moreski always talks about the church in Rome, how everybody talks about the church of Rome. Why did they talk about the church of Rome? Because they were loving like Jesus loved. There was something to talk about. And if, you know, the same could be said of us. If we're loving each other the way that Christ loves us, people will take notice, folks. They will take notice. And that's the call that Christ has on our lives today. Love one another as I have loved you. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for your word, for the display of love, Lord, that you've written here for us, but not not only on these pages, Lord, Lord, you've poured it into our hearts through your spirit. Lord, we thank you for the love of Christ. We thank you that you love us, Lord, without bounds, that your love is limitless for us, Lord. We thank you that you loved us even when we were yet still uh, sinners. When we were enemies of you, God, you loved us the same that you love us now. That blows my mind, Lord. You love us, God, and we want to love like you love. And so this morning, we're just asking you to fill us with your spirit, God. We're asking you right now, Lord, we need help. There's no way that we can do this apart from you, Lord. So we're asking you, Lord, to do what's necessary in our hearts even right now. To remove the hardness. To take away our unwillingness to surrender in certain areas, Lord. We do not want the works of the flesh in our lives, Lord. We want the fruits of the Spirit Without surrender, that won't happen. Lord, let us not fall into a workspace mentality this morning that we got to do more. But help us to know that we have to surrender to you. We know that you're pleading with our hearts right now, Lord. As we continue to pray, and the Lord's stirring your heart, if you or saying, hey, I need a little help with that this morning, with loving people, would you raise your hand? I just want to pray with you. My hand is lifted because I know that I need help. And if you're here this morning, you're saying, I don't know, Lord. I'm not loving the way that I need to love. There's some people in my life that I am having difficulty loving with. Would you just raise your hand? We want the Holy Spirit. You're surrendered to the Holy Spirit in those particular circumstances today. You're saying, God, I need help here. And I want to surrender. Is there anyone else this morning that says, I need the Holy Spirit more in my life and I want to surrender? Father, you can put your hands on. Father, you see every hand, you see every heart. And Lord, we know your will is for your spirit to have full reign in our lives. And Lord, you know that the flesh is so powerful in our lives, Lord, that It makes it difficult for us to walk in the Spirit. But you see today that the circumstances that are laid out before you, the difficult uh, people that we have in our lives, maybe we're the difficult one actually. We don't know, Lord, but we're surrendering right now to you. 
And we're asking you, God, to just fill us with the love of Christ. That we would love the way that you love. That we would be on mission the way that you were on mission. God, that every person that would, that would pass the gaze of our eyes, Lord, that we would be desperate for as you are. That is a work of your spirit, Lord. That is love. And we want that in our lives this morning, Lord. We want to be a church that is not just sit on a hill, that is light in the community, God, but we want to be lovers of this world as you were, Lord. Not of the things of this world, but lovers of these people, of the souls of the people that exist in this world that don't know you, Lord. So we're asking you to fill us even now so we surrender to you. And we thank you for meeting us here today. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we ask you to continue to meet us as we spend a few more minutes in worship that your spirit would just continue to have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.